uh, for the alcoholic who still suffers, followed by the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Uh, I have asked my husband, John M., to come up and read the promises. A meeting. I thought, oh, that could never happen to me. But uh, I've been sober now for eight years in AA, and I can say that the promises uh, have come true for me and continue to come true. Uh, let me tell you uh, a little bit about my story and how it was. Um, I live on the big island of Hawaii, and my home group is the Honalo Women's Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. I became sober in Los Angeles approximately eight years ago and uh, became a member of the South Bay Trudgers, although I'd, at the time I didn't know I was becoming a member of that group. Uh, I called AA early one Sunday morning and uh, asked for help because I could not quit drinking. I had tried to quit drinking every single day for the last year of my drinking, and I never could make 24 hours. And so by the time I called AA, uh, I knew that I was powerless over alcohol, and I knew what the big book talks about, about uh, cruel and incomprehensible demoralization. Uh, when I called AA, this young woman called Karen answered the phone, and she said very cheerfully, I'm Karen, I'm an alcoholic. And I'm going, oh. <laughs> and she said, uh, what can I do for you? And I said, well, I can't stop drinking. And uh, she said, well, do you think you can live without a drink till we come pick you up tonight? And I said I, that I would try. And uh, she arrived. Uh, she was a cute little bundle of about 300 pounds, very jolly. And she came in this derelict old Volkswagen to take me to my first AA meeting. And uh, these people took me to meetings every night for 30 days. And uh, I'm forever grateful to them because I never could have found my way to a, to a meeting or could have shared or could have stayed sober without those people. So uh, for me, the marvelous thing about AA was that uh, I discovered people. I Somehow in my childhood, I had shut people off, and I'm sure that's familiar to a whole lot of us. Um, I didn't trust people. But by the time I came to AA, I was desperate. All I wanted to do was die, and I had tried to kill myself, but uh, I was too much of a chicken to really succeed at it. So I decided the only thing I could do, left to do, was go to AA. And uh, I learned how not to drink in AA, uh, even though for three months after I had quit drinking, I was obsessed with alcohol. And uh, I remember I shook it out at home, and that was truly an unforgettable experience because uh, I, had, I drank around the clock and. Uh, uh, as, as, as we know, people who drink that way 
uh, shake themselves to bits uh, when they sober up. Um, that was truly unforgettable and I'm, I'm kind of glad I had to do it that way because I never want to go through that again. But um, I was lucky in another way. I was assigned a sponsor immediately. They told me that I was so sick I needed a sponsor right away. And uh, they assigned me a lady that must have had a black belt in karate. <laughs> Her name was Shirley. And uh, she taught me about AA, and she is basically the reason I'm here at all today. Uh, Shirley had been sober for 14 years, and before her sobriety, she had panhandled on Crenshaw Boulevard in, in LA, and uh, she sobered up and worked in an airplane factory. And probably she didn't have a high school diploma. But she taught me how to live. And by the time I got to AA, I think I realized that uh, with all my brilliant intelligence and being a doctor and having all kinds of degrees, I'd never learned how to live. So what Shirley told me to do, I was willing to do, which is what saved my life. I was willing to take direction. And I think that was probably one of the few times in my life uh, that I have, had been willing to do that. And she told me, she said, uh, don't drink and go to meetings. And uh, I did that and I went to meetings daily. She, taught, she told me what I was to eat three times a day, that I needed to exercise. And she also told me, she says, Sita, you're too sick to work. She says, you don't make any sense when you talk. <laughs> So my work was as a psychiatrist and as a psychoanalyst in Los Angeles. <laughs> she said, you're too crazy, you can't work. <laughs> so I listened to her. <laughs> Thank God for that. I guess if I hadn't, maybe they would have taken my license away. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> so uh, I was able to stay, stay sober and I kept going to meetings, uh, but I was chronically depressed. I'd been depressed since I was, since I was a little girl, and uh, for the first year and a half in AA, um, that seemed to get a lot worse. And I would tell my sponsor Shirley about it, and she would look at me sternly, and she would say, work the steps. And I would say to her, I don't know how to work the steps. And she would repeat and she would say, work the steps. So <coughs> I continued to be depressed and one day I told her I felt like killing myself. And she said, well, she said, how do you know that that would be the end? <laughs> <laughs> She said, maybe it'd be worse wherever you go. <laughs> so uh, then she su suggested something to me that I, thought, that I thought was really insane. She said, whenever you're really depressed, you call somebody. Well, that was very new to me because my whole life, I did everything 
by myself, for myself. I never asked anybody for anything. But that was a very important thing that I learned in AA, that, you know, you have to reach out. And I would call people, and she'd say, on the day when you want to kill yourself, rather than do that, invite one of the AA women out for lunch. So I figured, what the hell, I've tried everything else, you know? I'll try that. So I did that, and I, it was an amazing thing. It was like for the three-hour lunch, I never thought about myself, and I felt great. <laughs> so um, I spent a lot of time going out for lunch with people <laughs> the first few years. But over time, uh, my depression lifted. And I remember that I would get up in the morning and I would say the steps over and over. And for the first year and a half, you know, being a psychiatrist and also a Freudian trained psychoanalyst, uh, it, was, it was kind of hard for me to live without thinking. But I had to learn to live without thinking <laughs> because my thoughts were all negative. I had the most horrible thoughts, you know, it was kind of tapes that played over and over and over the committee. You're no damn good. You're not as good as anybody else. If anybody really knew you, they'd throw up and walk away. These tapes kept playing in my head. And uh, Shirley would tell me, she'd say, don't listen to that. You know, uh, just go about your business, go to meetings. And she'd say, make the coffee, clean the cigarette, clean out the ashtrays, talk to people. Uh, all of this was very, very new to me because I'd never talked to people. I grew up in an alcoholic family and uh, I learned at a very early age to, to live in my head. And uh, although I didn't drink till I was 42 years old, I had all the hallmarks of the alcoholic person. You know, I hated reality, I was grandiose, uh, I loved to play the victim. And uh, I really didn't know how to live. I had no idea how to live with people. And. Uh, Shirley told me, she said, don't think. She said, if you don't know what to do, ask anybody on the street corner what to do. She said, and then do it, because it'll be better advice than you could give yourself. I thought that was pretty weird, but <laughs> I found out that that kind of stuff really worked. <laughs> and uh, so uh, my life really began to change when I started to work the steps. And uh, I had been one of these isolated, very self-sufficient people. I could do it all myself. I'd been a super achiever, workaholic. And uh, I worked every day to make myself sane. This was while I was still drinking. But, you know, my, my best efforts got me almost dead. So I decided that I really didn't know how to do any of that, and that I had to do it another way. And the other way really, really worked. Uh, my husband and I had been drinking buddies. We got sober together. And uh, I remember when I got sober, I kind of wondered how come I'd ever married that guy. 
Um, <laughs> and my sponsor said, no major changes for two years. And she said, uh, you're to be kind to him, and you're not to fight, and whenever you're angry, call me, and we'll talk about it. Uh, and uh, you're to treat him like an honored guest. Well, that was terrible. I really hated my sponsor, but I did what she told me. And I was amazed, you know, after two years at how much nicer he had gotten. And uh, so uh, after we'd been sober for about uh, three years, we moved back out to Hawaii. We had originally gone to Hawaii on a geographic. And uh, John had the idea that he wanted to become a farmer. So we bought this land on the big island and uh, decided that we would retire there. And originally we'd gone over there, I decided, oh well, we'd go over there early. This is while we were drunk. And uh, we only lasted there for about six months. We went over there with all our worldly possessions and in six months came back with all our worldly possessions. And three years later, you know, after being with the South Bay Trudgers, and we also went to an IDAA meeting in Manhattan Beach for several years, uh, it became possible for us to go back to Hawaii. And it really was an experience to drive on the same roads, to see the same people, only sober. Same scenery, only sober. And uh, John and I now both practice psychiatry on the big island of Hawaii. And uh, the way I practice psychiatry has radically changed. I used to uh, do only analytically oriented therapy. I used to sit and listen. Uh, I don't do that. I don't do that because most of my patients are addicts like myself. And uh, I find that uh, I become quite active and I share with them my experience, strength, and hope. I share uh, how the program has changed my life. And uh, uh, I remember originally, you know, it was very difficult for me. I, uh, being a doctor, you know, and being a drunk was hard. And I didn't want to go to meetings because I thought somebody would see me and all that. And my sponsor, Shirley, had told me, she said, your first priority, if you want to live, always has to be AA. Not doctoring, not who you're married to, not anything else. And she said, um, you have to go to AA meetings. And if you have no anonymity, that's okay. Maybe you'll stay alive if you go to AA meetings. And, you know, um, either you'll have enough uh, patients come to see you or you won't. That's, that's not in your hands anyway. So, thank God, one more time, I, uh, I put my pride down, and I never forget that uh, I went to a meeting at the church in Hawaii, and I met oh, six of my patients at that meeting. And it was, it was and, and not only six, six of my patients that I had at one time told that they were alcoholics, you know. <laughs> they didn't seem at all surprised to see me. <laughs> In fact, they seemed to be very relieved to see me. 
and they all hugged me and uh, made me feel good and all that. So, you know, I live in a small town and, uh, you know, there are not too many CETAs in the town and there's only one CETA and, and CETA goes to AA meetings and everybody knows it and it's perfectly all right. Um, the doctors know it, my patients know it, my friends know it. And uh, I now go to, have, go to a women's meeting in Honalo and uh, it's just wonderful. I mean, I go there and I share and a lot of the people there are my patients, either have been or, or are. And that at times, you know, used to present some difficulty but it doesn't for me anymore because uh, all that works out. And uh, today I consider that I'm a kind of like a medium uh, for passing along certain knowledge, certain experience. And uh, I've stopped worrying about, you know, will people come to see me or not? Will I be successful? Will I make enough money? Uh, I don't worry about that anymore. It's, it's very weird. It's like ever since I asked God to restore me to sanity and I asked God to run my life, my life has gotten better. And uh, it keeps getting better. Uh, I have bad days. Uh, you know, uh, during this time of sobriety, uh, Five years ago, I got breast cancer. And about eight years ago, I developed emphysema because I'm multiply addicted. Uh, I smoked until I couldn't breathe anymore. But uh, I've learned how to live with chronic illness. And for the first time in my life, you know, I'm not depressed, I'm not suicidal. And uh, all of that has to do with this program and with you people. And I'm really happy to be here today. Thank you. And now I'd like to introduce Ken. Pardon me. Oh. Morning. I'm Ken, an alcoholic. Hello, my sponsor's here. Charlie handed me a medallion as I started to come up here this morning. Twelve years ago, I stopped, stopped drinking. Ten years ago, Monday, I uh, started going to Alcoholics Anonymous. I practice urology in the Central Coast area of uh, California, Monterey Bay. I come from a medical background. Many of my forebears were doctors. My father was a prominent doctor. Uh, there was a dean of the medical school in, in the immediate family. So I learned early on the rigidity and the uh, uh, benefits associated with the medical profession. I never saw alcohol in my home and I didn't know of anybody that among my immediate relations that had a problem with alcohol. The one thing that was also lacking in my home was uh, uh, was love or a feeling of caring. 
That combined with this Dr. Mystique uh, led me to have a desire to achieve, to be recognized, to be loved. I learned about alcohol in college fraternity days, and I learned about uh, alcohol in medical school get-togethers, learned about alcohol in the Army and alcohol in my early practice. <clears throat> I also came by a sleep disorder. I like to blame this on my father who had a problem like that. But early in my 20s, uh, I uh, started using prescription drugs, and as soon as I was able to write the same, I was using them in, in excess. I uh, used all the... Uh, uh, I've been around quite a while, so I've had a chance to uh, go through a long list of uh, uh, barbiturates, sedatives, tranquilizers, and uh, uh, the later mood-altering drugs. I've been blessed with or cursed with instant success in medicine wherever I've been. I seem to have been in the right place at the right time for somebody in my specialty. When I started in Southern California, I was working uh, for four different hospitals and doing most of the work uh, in my field in those four hospitals in four different communities, and I maintained three, uh, three professional offices. An average day, I would leave at 4.30 in the morning and get home at 9 or 10 at night. My duty, as so I thought, <coughs> was to give my wife and children an expensive home, well-furnished, nice cars, private schools, and exotic va vacations. Otherwise, I saw very little of my family. I received academic and civic honors, but nothing was ever enough. It became necessary for booze and drugs to uh, enter my life. I also became engaged in improper sexual conduct, and uh, this became a crutch. Gambling became a way of life, as did uh, eating. I was uh, 60 pounds over what I am today when I came to the program. I gradually found myself estranged from my three grown children. I lived separately from my wife. I was spending my nights in uh, gambling places and uh, drinking heavily and uh, finding myself in strange bedrooms. Nevertheless, I was able to maintain the facade of uh, being the successful surgeon, head of a local church board, president of the, local, uh, the uh, regional Boy Scouts of America, the, uh, uh, and leader of the local Rotary Club. You name a committee or some organization that needed some, a worker, I was there. I was there, yeah. And during this time, it became necessary for me to do geographics. Because as time went by, the relationships and the, uh, both professional and personal became more and more difficult. I began, it became uh, uh, apparent that there were a lot of bastards out there, and, uh, uh, you know, boy, it was hard to relate to them. When I came into the pro, when I stopped drinking, my accountant noted that year he was telling me he said, "You're running a two two girl office in this one place, and and uh, I'm having trouble with your taxes because you have 27 employees." I said, "You can't find anybody that'll work there. All a bunch of chasing men, or they're you know they're 
they've got female problems or whatever, you know. You just can't keep people uh, on the job. I'll give a couple examples of my behavior during the, these halcyon days. <clears throat> Uh, after drinking and using most of one night, I was driving to the hospital, and I overturned my car, rolled it over into a, uh, a hillside, and I crawled out of this thing, and this, this young lady stops and asks if she can be of help, and I said, yes, I need to go to the hospital. She says, you sure do, and I said, let's go to the hospital. So she took me to the hospital, dropped me off in the emergency room area, I walked through the emergency room area to the surgery department, changed my clothes, and operated all day. I called the, uh, the uh, car dealer and told him there was something malfunctioning about his car. <laughs> <laughs> On another occasion, I played uh, uh, in a celebrity tennis uh, uh, affair. Uh, it was called the Clint Eastwood uh, uh, Open, and I'm a great name dropper, you'll find. And that's part of my grandiosity. I, uh, I, I drove the hospital that evening in my cups and uh, made my preoperative rounds. <clears throat> a patient stated, uh, have you been drinking, doctor? And the nurse next to me says, uh, maybe we ought to get out of here. And uh, the, uh, the night supervisor came and said, maybe you ought to get out of here. And pretty soon the emergency room doctor came and said, maybe you ought to get out of here. The anesthesiologists, and you know, they're a different breed of cats. They're always, <clears throat> they've always been kind of a nemesis. But um, <laughs> anyway, the uh, anesthesiologist, uh, a lady called, said, I hear what you're doing, and I won't do your surgery tomorrow. And I said, Well, screw you, you know. Chief of surgery called a few minutes later and said, uh, uh, Your surgery is canceled for tomorrow. And I said, Screw you. And Chief of uh, the, the the chief of staff called, who's a good friend. He's also a patient, and he says, don't you care about your reputation? And I said, hey, you worry about yourself. I know what's going on here. Anyway, I went out to my car, and uh, I'd forgotten that there was a young lady that I'd picked up along the way, and uh, the car was gone, and, and uh, things were kind of falling apart. <laughs> the, the, the car was found uh, the next day, uh, some 25 miles distant, and uh, uh, kind of damaged. On neither of these episodes did I think I was in the wrong. It was a fault of all these, uh, you know, these bastards. And my drinking and drug use and sexual excesses were now complemented by physical abuse of my wife. That's something to be real proud of. I, uh, and yet I seemed to have no control over that. I couldn't seem to understand why that would come out of the blue. I carried a loaded gun in my sports car along with the, uh, uh, the obligatory uh, uh, bottle of vodka. I made a feeble attempt at suicide. I, I tried to drown myself, and in the middle of this, uh, there was a, a phone call from one of my colleagues, and it was an orthopedist, and he said, I want to talk to you about a case. And my ego, again, got in the way, and uh, I had to, uh, had to help him with this case. Just, uh, on, uh, Twelve years ago, at the time of this coin, I sought out a counselor to straighten out my <coughs> marital affairs, and I wanted him to, you know, take care of my wife, see, get her off my case. He suggested I stop drinking, 
And I said, this is not why I'm here. You don't seem to understand. I'm here to solve our marital problems, and it's her on my back. <clears throat> to show him, I did stop drinking. And boy, was it hell then. Was it bad then. I had two years without a drink, and that was bad news, because I, I was without my, my, my best friend. I had, uh, and my wife, bless her heart, saw to it that we really tried to get me straightened out. We took a tour around the world. We went to some different seminar just about every weekend on, you know, transforming your mind or, or reliving the past or, you know, uh, we have a place in California called Esalen where you, uh, you know, you get, well, anyway, it's back to nature. And it was, uh, we tried that kind of thing too. Nothing seemed to work. Nothing seemed to work. So I went back to the same counselor who's uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous and has been a good friend of mine subsequently. And he said, you should, it's time for you to go to AA. And I said, there's no way that I'll go to Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm not, I'm not with that ilk. I'm not with that group of people. So he arranged for me to go to a, uh, a meeting in uh, Mountain View, which was 60 miles away, of recovering physicians. Two of the doctors at the convention were at my, at my first meeting there. Anyway, my wife drove me to this thing. I couldn't even drive to this. I was so jittery about it. And I uh, heard these stories that were similar to mine. And of all things, on my first meeting, they asked me to talk and share. And it came out. It came out. And I, uh, I suddenly realized I was not unique. As I walked out of the meeting, I had this glow. I was feeling good. And there was a Dr. David S. who's outspoken. And he says, uh, great pitch. What are you on? I said, what are you talking about? What do you mean? What? I haven't had a drink for two years. And he said, what are you on? And I, he said, what medicines have you taken today? And I said, well, you know, I have all these allergies. We've got all these pollens. I take a Benadryl now and then. And he says, yeah, how many Benadryls have you had? And I'd had some eight or ten that afternoon, a 50 milligram. That's where I was coming from. Nevertheless, I jumped into AA with uh, both feet, and I really felt this was the answer. This was going to get me well. After six weeks, I thought my crash course wasn't moving fast enough. I should have been well by that time. I called Joe Purse, Dr. Joseph Purse, who uh, uh, treated Betty Ford, and uh, uh, I thought he might be good enough for me. And uh, uh, he suggested I come down to Southern California and spend a weekend with him. I was uh, annoyed that no one met me at Orange County Airport. They told me to catch a cab. I got in this cab, and the driver went a long ways, and he said, turned around, and he said, do you know where you're going? I said, yes, this care manner. And he says, that's where they put the uh, drunks and the addicts. And he looked at me, and I said, and here I'm in my three-piece suit with a briefcase, and that's all. I said, well, I'm going there. I'm a hospital inspector. I, I arrived at that facility and they locked me in detox I had, uh, who hadn't had a drink for over two years. When Dr. Purse finally showed up two days later, I explained to him how to run his hospital and how he could run his life too. And he explained to me there was only one thing he was trying to do with me 
and that was to remove the white coat. That white coat was very important to me because it came from my family and it came in everything I did for my entire life, the doctor synonymous with God. I had developed my own set of rules and by God those were my rules because I was a doctor, I was a physician. With my fifth step uh, and a great sponsor, I've been blessed with a, a man with 44 years in the program and uh, I've just he, he, along with a lot of other people, has saved my life. He acquainted me with the fact I suffered from pride and resentment and anger. My son's with me today. He's uh, at this meeting. He's a doctor in Salt Lake City. He practices internal medicine and psychiatry. Last year, he took me to the uh, international meeting of uh, uh, adult children of alcoholics, and I just had such a wonderful time with him there and I learned about workaholism which I've tried to, to work on as well. Anyway this morning we we're reading the newspaper this globe that's delivered here and they had an article on anger the emotion of the of this era and uh, we both found it interesting but he's and they described the volcano family and uh, David's my son said uh, uh, Daddy, uh, do you remember uh, I used to draw pictures of volcanoes? I says, yeah, I think I remember that a little bit. You had, And he says, I put your face on them. That was an eye-opener. That wasn't planned. I've, I've been rehearsing this speech for a while, as you can tell. I was also informed by my sponsor that pride and resentment were a manifestation of fear. And this is where I really got angry because I did not feel I was afraid of anything. I'd spent a lifetime, if something came up, I could beat it, beat it down usually without, uh, without losing a battle. Nevertheless, uh, uh, since, uh, since my defrocking, since removing the white coat, I've uh, learned that, uh, that uh, I'm fearful of just about everything and uh, I have to remember that. The past 10 years have been a great challenge. My wife of 42 years, how she stayed with it, I don't know. We're doing the best together we ever have. I have the love and companionship of three children. I mentioned my son is here today. I'm still practicing urology and doing a lot of surgery on a daily basis. I don't know, that's a real blessing that I've been through. I've learned the value of love and spirituality. There is a God, and he's not me, and he's not a doctor. <laughs> uh, we lost our, uh, our uh, major lifetime investment, a uh, million dollar house on the Monterey Bay uh, uh, in the earthquake of 89. Uh, and we spent a lot of time, money, and effort uh, in the intervening period of time trying to recover and reestablish and uh, not seeming to make much headway. People keep asking me, how do you do it? How do you stay calm about that? It's small potatoes compared with recovery from alcoholism and drug addiction and trying to become a good human being. AA has taught me that I can recover from a serious illness. 
the, the concept that alcoholism is an illness has saved my life. It has taught me that I can recover from alcoholism, from a serious illness, and it taught me that I have been sick and not evil. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Ken. Now we'll hear from Robert G., California. Morning, everybody. I'm uh, Bob G. from Santa Barbara. I'm an alcoholic rheumatologist. Wow. I'm usually uh, verbose. I grew up in a dysfunctional family. I grew up in a dysfunctional family. Uh, I was a sometime battered kid. Uh, I was an achiever, and I had great self-confidence, but no self-esteem. Uh, I knew that I could make the team, I knew that I could be a class officer, and I knew I could get straight A's, and I did all those things. Sometimes I would bring home four A's and a B, and the response was, why the B? And um, there was always room for improvement. My father's favorite Bible verse was, be ye therefore perfect. And um, so we were a perfectionistic household and looking really good in the community, and playing games like, uh, if you really loved me, you'd know what I'm thinking, and you'd do it. And, and um, we had ways of punishing each other for not reading our minds. Uh, I was reared in a fundamentalistic religion in which um, coffee, alcohol, tobacco were anathema. So. Um, I didn't find the delights of my addiction until I was 28 years old on active duty in the Air Force as a medical officer in San Antonio. And I was thinking that it was, it's a sweet and wonderful irony that I was asked to share with this group in San Antonio the place I started what I call my RSD, really serious drinking. And I was too smart to get too drunk in public, so I drank at home alone a lot. I used to like to make runs to Mexico, Gene. I used to, to cover those, uh, what, what, 180 miles from San Antonio to, to Mexico in about two and a half hours and make a rum run and uh, buy my uh, rum for $1.80 a, uh, a quart and uh, smuggle it in. Uh, that seemed like a reasonable thing to do for me. <laughs> and uh, I also hung out a lot at the uh, officers club uh, at Lackland Air Base and um, you have to be a member. If you belong to the Air Force and you're stationed there, you have to be a member of the Officers Club. And when I went to San Antonio, I was a non-drinker. And one day after we had taken care of some shot up boys, 17, 18, 19 year old boys, flown in on a C-131 with uh, temporary colostomies and partial amputations and genital wounds and lost eyes from stepping on landmines. Um, the surgeon I was working with took me over to um, the officers club and he said, I'll buy you a drink. And I was such a good drinker, I ordered a scotch and seven up. He said, no, no, you can't do it that way. He said, it's bourbon and seven up. 
or it's scotch and soda. And I said, well, I like 7-Up, so I'm going to have bourbon and 7-Up. And they had a happy hour at the, at the officers club there from 4.15 to whatever, 7.15, on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. They didn't want to miss anybody, folks. And you got a double for 35 cents, only it was a triple. So I had my first real euphoria and freedom from pain and self-doubt and freedom from uh, that incredible uh, horror that I'd just seen earlier in the day for a dollar five. Now, uh, they were real strict about driving under the influence on the base. Um, and it was, uh, the, the, the punishments were much worse than, than uh, in town. So I wasn't dumb. I called the motor pool and I said, uh, I said, uh, this is Captain Gerber. I'm at the officers club and uh, I need a ride home. And they said, yes, sir, we'll be right over. <laughs> and they were the greatest enablers for a couple years. And I, I thought to myself, I, I, I'm drinking alcoholically from the get-go, but when I get out of the Air Force, I'll quit. And when I got out of the Air Force, I thought, golly, this residency is tough, long hours, lots of stress, I'll quit after the residency. And then I got in to two of the most wonderful years of my life, my rheumatology fellowship at UCLA, and I thought, God, these are such great years, I need to celebrate. And then I started practice, and it was tough because you had to walk on eggs. The, the medical community was polarized, and I was the only rheumatologist in town. And I'm such a people pleaser, I didn't want to offend anybody. So that's a lot of pressure. I had to drink a lot. Meanwhile, my sense of values um, uh, was compromised. Uh, what little impulse control I had was lost. And uh, what I considered to be the error of my first marriage uh, became very apparent. And when I was in enough pain, I decided I had to quit drinking. And uh, so I white-knuckled it for a while, and I realized I couldn't. But I was so full of denial that I told myself I was doing controlled drinking. I was only drinking, on weeknights, I was only drinking a pint of spirits, and on weekends, only a fifth. That's controlled drinking. And um, I took seriously my responsibility as a father to two girls, and we um, went for marriage counseling. And we, we got to this rather large, bearded fellow from Brooklyn uh, who, um, in the very first interview, said, God, you, you live a complicated, stress-filled life. How do you deal with it? Do you drink? And uh, I felt so transparent and so ashamed. And he put up with that for a while, and uh, he, he counseled us both individually and as a couple. And after about five months, he said, I don't make this call easily, but you're a seriously ill alcoholic, and you need to get into recovery, you need to quit. And I won't be responsible for your mental health anymore unless you quit. I don't care what program you choose. Well, I cast certain cho well-chosen aspersions on his ancestry, and I walked out of there. And uh, after about two months, I called him up and I said, um, you're right. I need you, you're the most meaningful mentor figure in my life, and we'll do it with your rules. And he said, okay. 
and I came back and made another appointment, and he said, I recommend you go to Alcoholics Anonymous or that you go into inpatient treatment facility. You're sort of on the borderline. And I said, well, I can do it myself, but if you insist, I'll go to Alcoholics Anonymous. I went to a couple meetings, and um, I went to mainstream AA, and I, I regarded it sort of as a leper colony. <laughs> because you see, I had this cold, dark spot in my heart that was unique and was different. And I saw all the differences and not the similarities. And some of those guys were actually felons. And some of them were actually drug addicts. And uh, I went back to Ira and I said, Ira, uh, I think you made a wrong diagnosis. I said, I've never missed work. I've never drunk on call. I've never had a driving arrest. I've never had barf on my overalls and I've never, I've got all my teeth. A lot of those guys don't have their teeth. He said, you're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> So um, I was in and out of Alcoholics and the title of my talk is Slippers Need Love Too. And I reasoned something like this. If alcoholism is a disease, it must be a lot like diabetes, which is a multifactorial, metabolic, difficult disease. And if you really understand diabetes, you understand internal medicine. And uh, so if, if alcoholism is like diabetes, I'm probably a light case. <laughs> I'm probably a mild, diet-controlled, non-ketosis-prone uh, alcoholic. <laughs> and uh, just maybe I'm not even one. Just maybe. You know, some, some of these diabetics, they have abnormal glucose tolerance tests once, and it's because they, they didn't have glycogen stores in their liver or something. Maybe I'm not really one. Maybe I better go out and really find out. So I went out and did some research. And it, and, it, and it was very interesting because it was on a ski trip to Kitzbühel, Austria. And um, I tried uh, what they call hunter's tea, which is sort of a counterpart of Long Island tea. And it warms your gizzard after you've been skiing. And I felt incredible shame because, you see, you guys ruined me for drinking. And we were in the Lufthansa flight from Frankfurt to L.A., and I was with a group of uh, anesthesiologists. And also there were some Australians on the flight, and the flight attendant from uh, Germany told me, this is the only flight we've ever made where all the beer's gone. <laughs> we've depleted our beer supply on this flight. And uh, well into the flight, pretty soon we heard the captain's voice come on, and he said, um, ladies and gentlemen, we are now over North Dakota American airspace. And I thought, oh my god, I have to stop drinking. <laughs> I'm home. And, um, and I did for a while. And I shared with you in San Antonio that, um, that I really hate pain. And I was uh, fearful about, I became a single dad in April of 1985 when my former wife, Easter Day symbolically, when my former wife put my two teenage girls, actually they were 14 and 11 at the time, on the doorstep and said, I've had it with them, they're yours. I'm going to LA to make my fortune. And I, I struggled with that, and I wasn't totally surrendered in that role, and I had a lot of fear, and uh, my 13-year-old became sexually active, 
uh, was a client of Planned Parenthood when she was 13 and a half. She had the body of an 18-year-old. And um, strangely, my younger daughter, who's adopted but lived in my house since she was an infant, strangely, she became an alcoholic. Can you imagine that? And um, I was fearful about these kids and, and worried about a juncture in my practice. And uh, I thought, maybe, maybe I could just have one night of oblivion from this pain. That was January 28, 1988. Now see, some people call it a slip, but I don't call it a slip. It, it, it is a good acronym. It stands for sobriety lost its priority. But it wasn't a slip, it was a relapse. I live up on a high hill. I had to drive off that hill and go get that booze. And I got a lot. And I drove back up the hill and I got schnockered. But you know what? I didn't get oblivion. That inner lead ball of fear in the pit of my stomach never went away. I didn't get oblivion. I got sick. I didn't get any rest. I threw up all night. So you guys ruined me for drinking. And I appreciate it. And I'm pleased to tell you that's when I had my last drink. January 28, 1988. So I went back to two or three AA meetings and I didn't have the guts to put my hand up as a newcomer. And I went to my home group, which is called the Way Out Group, named after what they thought they might call the, the, the big book at first, The Way Out. And um, there are a couple guys in there. One of them is uh, an athletic uh, guy. He's about six, seven weighs about 260 and doesn't have an ounce of fat on him. And I was just sure he was going to beat the hell out of me after the meeting because I put my hand up. And he came up to me and he embraced me. And I haven't felt love like that in a long time. And uh, in fact, it was, I, it was after the relapse that I felt the love, and hence the title of my talk. Now, I'd like to tell you that it was all, um, all gravy since then. Since Boca Raton, my closest sister, who was 45, who shared our disease, put an 8-millimeter bullet through her head on August 20th of last year. And um, I, I've never experienced pain like that before or since. She was a poet. She was chronically depressed. She suffered from the chronic fatigue syndrome. And she was beautiful. She was one of these green-eyed redheads who wrote poetry. And she and I were close. She called me the day before she did it, and I didn't diagnose it. And the guilt I felt about that was enormous. And I'm addicted to support groups, so I went to the Suicide Survivor Support Group of Hospice. And those people told me two things that really helped me. A, it wasn't my fault, and B, when you feel like you're going crazy from grief, you're not necessarily really going crazy. And it helped me a lot. Then my 18-year-old acted out, and um, she was very close to her Aunt Carol Lee, and she uh, expressed her disease fully in every destructive way conceivable. She would be gone missing for a week after a rock concert. and. Um, her mother and I and her sister did an intervention and she went into treatment. And treatment worked partly. She stopped calling me asshole and started calling me dad. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
And she went to uh, 60 meetings in 60 days, and she still went out again. She started hanging out with her lower companions. And she's out there right now, folks. And uh, the Tough Love Group, see, I'm, I'm addicted to support groups. The Tough Love Group in Santa Barbara said, you've got to kick her out. So her move-out date is August the 7th. I got phone calls from two sources up here. She's driving my expensive German car while I'm gone, in spite of the fact that I took her license away um, because she was drinking un uh, driving under the influence. The cops didn't catch her, but I did. And you know, the damn car runs without the driver's license. So I had to let that one go, too. I want to tell you that because of the Fellowship of International Doctors and Alcoholics Anonymous, and because of the Fellowship of Mainstream uh, Alcoholics Anonymous, and because of the, of the 12 steps, I'm clean and sober today, and in spite of all this pain of this past year, I've not found it necessary to take a drink. And I owe a lot of that to you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bob. And now we'll hear from uh, Jim L. My name is Jim, and I'm alcoholic. And uh, much of my story has been told already. I've really enjoyed the, uh, the speakers before me. And I'm local. I'm British Columbia, and I'm from Vancouver. And I'd like to welcome you all here to, to the meeting. I've been uh, enjoying doing the service work. It's good for me. I have sort of this weird outlook on life. Being the last speaker, I figured they'd probably never get to me. So uh, <laughs> I left preparing my speech till this morning. And I, I actually left a little early last night to try and get a good night's sleep and get up early this morning to prepare my talk. And I got up at 4.30 this morning. I flipped on the light, and no light came on. And uh, I went around the rest of the house trying to flip lights on and this and that, and uh, nothing was going on. I realized there was a power shortage, and I thought, well, what now? And uh, how am I going to prepare this talk? And I got out this flashlight that we have, emergency flashlight, and then I thought, how the hell am I going to shave for this meeting? I have to come here with, with not shaving, and then I thought, well, I'll have to put the flashlight on the counter. and. Uh, somehow shave with this and it took me back to one time I was I never drank sanely it was always insane and I ended up in this woman's house in my early 20s and I woke up uh, there in the morning and I thought my god I gotta get to work and I hadn't shaved and I said have you got a razor in the house she says well all I got is what I used to shave my legs and I said well let me borrow it. So I borrowed it. And I'm telling you, I went to work looking. I was out of a chainsaw murder a movie or something. My face was all <laughs> cut up. So then I had visions this morning of arriving here looking like I'd come out of a chainsaw movie or something. But uh, as usual, things started to fall into place for me. And I thought about what do you do to what I do to prepare for a talk is really not the writing part of the talk. It's a spiritual preparation. And I thought to myself, there must be a candle in the house here somewhere. And I used to do a lot of yoga meditation at one time. And I, I remembered where the candle was. And I found it. And I lit the candle. And I didn't shave right away. I sat down at uh, my desk. And I started to read 
my inspirational stuff for the day, and I started to read my Bible and some A literature, and I knew I was being prepared for my talk this morning. That was the preparation I had to do. It was really, I didn't do any writing or whatever, but I started feeling that oneness and that feeling of being looked after that I get in the morning most of the time when I spend the time I'm supposed to on my morning meditation. And to shave, I use the candle and I seem to not look like I came out of a chainsaw movie. Um, I'm, the title of my talk is Space Cadet. It's a, it's a term teenagers use. It's just one, it's one little better than airhead. <laughs> and Space Cadet uh, really describes a lot of my recovery. I did not get cirrhosis. I got some kind of mental dysfunction after I sobered up. It had been coming on for years before I'm, I sobered up, I'm sure, but I've had a great deal of difficulty getting focused and concentrating properly. And when Fred phoned me up to talk a month or so ago, he, it was the third time he'd phoned me up to ask me for a name for my talk, and I told him the other two times, look, I'll just do how it works. And he phoned me up a third time, and I started wondering whether, as a term, I started using the space cadet thing, and I started wondering whether he was a space cadet or I was a space cadet, because <laughs> I remember telling him twice I was just going to do this. So that thing came through my head to call my, the name of my talk Space Cadet. I'm a, a practicing epidemiologist, a field epidemiologist. I study communicable disease outbreaks in British Columbia, and I'm very proud to be in that job. It's a big breakthrough for me to be proud to be part of the medical profession. I, it's been one of the problems I've had to learn how to be proud to be a doctor and to feel good about myself and my job. A lot of my story involves other people, and I must ask the people I talk about, some of them are dead, uh, I must ask their forgiveness for talking about them in my talk. I'd like to focus totally on myself, but it's totally impossible to do without talking about other people. My dad is a psychiatrist, and I come from a very dysfunctional, frightening home. Much of my life has actually been terrifically frightening. I found AA a very frightening experience for a good part of my AA. And I found last year, in 83, was my first IDA meeting. And it was a very frightening experience for me. I'm feeling more comfortable this time, but it's still not totally back to normal yet, but I'm feeling more comfortable. But my childhood was an extremely frightening experience, and I actually know, looking back on it now, that I was not in a very safe environment as a child. And a lot of the coping mechanisms I used to escape from what I was living in have resulted in a lot of my mental dysfunction. But you know, the coping skills that I learned in that home that I was raised in were totally inappropriate for learning how to cope with the world. But in all deference to my parents, they did not have the coping skills to deal with me either because I was sure uh, a kid who was hard to handle. I was a self-run riot. I wanted to do my own thing. I was totally rebellious. And by the time I was a teenager, I was a full-blown teenage alcoholic. How they handled a lot of the stuff, the way we handled a lot of things in our home was by denial. We never talked about hardly anything. And I was raised in a home where I learned that the way you fix things is was an external fix. And of course, the external fix was essentially medication. My mom was 
chronic barbiturate user, and I got using some of her barbiturates when I was in high school, and I had troubles with girlfriends and things like that. My dad was uh, sipped around Bewley at noon hour, and when he got drunk, my mother was a rageaholic and got terrifically, incredibly enraged. She had rheumatic heart disease. She almost died when I was young, and she told us pretty well on a daily basis that she would probably be dead the next morning if we didn't behave properly. My, my brother and I are the only two in that family. There was four of us that was raised in this home. My brother's a chronic alcoholic. He uh, teaches music in, in the University of uh, Manitoba and uh, still has his job. I don't know how. He just got out of an institution again recently. And uh, my mother did finally die when she was 53. And uh, I don't know what I'd do now if she was alive as far as making amends. But uh, if she didn't shape up, I think I'd tell her to shape up or I'd... A lot of the angers come out the last few years. It's not as bad as it used to be. My dad uh, committed suicide after I got into the program on all the pills he was taking and so forth. But the handling of the denial with the emotion thing was an ex looking back on it now was the way we handled things, plus the external fix. When I was in university, I was having a real tough time one time with whatever, and I phoned him up and I said, it's really going rough over here. Of course, I really wasn't good at explaining my emotions, uh, so I couldn't really tell him what was wrong, but I did tell him I wasn't able to concentrate very well and that I was really feeling sort of um, depressed, I guess. And he said, well, I'll send you a prescription, prescription for some Ritalin. So he sent me a prescription. He never asked me about my feelings or anything. And I, you know, I've met some really good psychiatrists since I've been in the program, and there's some wonderful psychiatrists in the Lower Mainland, and my dad was a wonderful psychiatrist. But he really was of the old school where it's the external fix. And uh, I was never really hooked to drugs, believe it or not. My main problem was alcohol. When I took my first drink as a teenager, I was completely hooked when I took my first morning drunk after my first real bad drunk. I took a morning drink and I was just completely hooked from that time on. I, uh, there isn't a lot of time here, but I want to give you a little bit about myself of what happened right at the end and how I'm functioning today, which is the big thing, is how I'm functioning today. But I, I came out here as an, a geographical escape from Ottawa. That's where I was raised. And I married a nurse. Uh, I, at 25, I figured I'd better get married. I'd be dead. The, 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 light, the way I was going was nothing but death coming. And I married somebody who didn't drink or smoke or whatever. And she helped me set up practice in the North Shore. And it was very difficult for her to get pregnant. But she did get pregnant. And... Uh, I practiced in the North Shore for, over here for 10 years, but after I just got set up uh, about a year in practice and, and my wife died in childbirth and my son died as well. They both died in childbirth and there was a liquor store two doors from my office and I started going there every day after work. I never could drink. I had this allergy of the body. I mean, I was just a person who never should have taken a drink. And then I started getting this obsession that someday I'd be able to drink like other people. And I tried everything to overcome this obsession. And I quite quickly got remarried to an alcoholic and got into a, a terrible alcoholic marriage type of thing with both of us drinking. And 
uh, I've seen that movie, the, the Days of Wine and Roses, where the couple are out in the backyard scraping in the ground for, to see who'll get the bottle, and we used to fight for the last drink. And uh, It's easier to talk about it now. I've, I found a lot of this very embarrassing, but uh, there was rooms without furniture in it, and there was rooms with the curtains half fallen off, and, and the kids running around without any clothes on, the kids that eventually came. And after five years, I couldn't. I was in a terrible state. I didn't know what had happened. And I used to go on house calls and see families that had nice lives with, I'm sh not everything normal, but sure it was nothing like the nut house I lived in back where I was. I had a nice office with a fancy car and all that kind of thing, but my home was sure a nut house. I started trying to sober up for a year. I tried everything, everything it mentions in the big book, and talk about being a space cadet. I even thought if I went to the petty cash and took my money out instead of going to the liquor store, if I opened up a fresh bank account somewhere, what I'd do is bypass the liquor store, go to the pet, this other bank where I had a bank account and become a millionaire and quit drinking. I'll open up the bank account with five dollars and it never got any higher than five bucks. Could never get by, by this, uh, <laughs> this store. So I, uh, I finally, one night, we had this terrible, bloody crisis in the house, and I called a classmate of mine who was out working here. He's a psychiatrist down in San Diego now, in fact, because he's coming to visit me next week. That was, that was 20 years ago now. And he says at that time he mentioned the AA thing, but I said, I just, I'd been dragging my wife around to doctors for about a year now, trying to get something done for her, but they kept telling me she's just an alcoholic and hopeless and whatever. She actually quit drinking before I did, after she saw what was happening to me, and she's never drunk since. <laughs> uh, <laughs> she's doing very well. But I uh, called Al, and he came over to the house, and uh, he put me on the antibuse, and I was on antibuse for three months, and I got through to AA, and uh, it's another entire story, but I got to AA through a, a patient. I had a lot of alcoholic patients. We seemed to have something in common. And... Uh, <laughs> This alcoholic patient knew I was interested in alcoholism, and I came to my AA meeting, and I was very, very fortunate. I saw somebody get a 10-year cake at my first meeting. Uh, it gave me my first glimmer of hope. It started breaking down my denial system that I was an alcoholic. I got home, and I read the big book from up and down and backwards for the weekend. That night, when I was a kid, I read once that people find God in times of despair. I'm not a saint, but some of the saints have found God at the depths of despair. And after, at that night before I was going to bed on Sunday night, I started worrying about something. Uh, always been a worrier, worried about my parents, worried about this, that, and the other thing. And I did this let go and let God thing right there, and I woke up the next morning completely insane. I Colors had changed, everything had changed. I ended up in the mental hospital for three months. And the last 20 years has been gradually getting back on my feet. I had to leave general practice. I found I'd lost all, I had some kind of, I never had any self-esteem, but the self-confidence uh, that I had must have been from drugs and alcohol and that, because without it, I lost my self-confidence. And I ended up being a single parent went back to school and, and took my epidemiology and public health and got, into a more regular lifestyle, which was better for me. I could get to more meetings. But I've been, I've been working very, very hard on AA the last uh, 20 years. There's, here, uh, when we close meetings, we sometimes say, keep coming back. It works. Uh, there's a fellow I know that says, keep coming back, it's work. 
And uh, <laughs> 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 practicing the principles in all my affairs and, and trying to get rid of this uh, shitty outlook on life and try not to blame all the crap that I just told you about for my problems. Instead of looking for something outside to change, the outer fix to make me feel better, I now know that the way for me to feel better is to look inside me and get my, what I call, internal fix. And I get my internal fix. I don't look around for... I still do it. I still blame my job, a bad night's sleep, that cup of coffee, that uh, jerk down the road, my wife's not shaping up. I've been married to somebody, uh, an AA member, a lovely lady. We've been married 15 years now. She helped me raise the children. We have a lovely home down here in the West End now, and uh, life is just marvelous for me. I can't describe how wonderful life is for me and, uh, with all the external fixed stuff. But I still look around and say, if I just had that, I'd feel better. But I know the answer for me is to look within myself, get my external fix through dealing with other people in AA, talking to my sponsees, my sponsor, that kind of thing, and above all, doing what I did this morning before I came here for this meeting, and that's sitting down, reading my inspirational material, and getting my conscious contact with God, and that, that fixes me up. And thank you very much for listening to me, and thanks for coming.